who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Podiobooks.com, an association with pjvalentine.net and writersexchange.com, presents Weaver's Web, written and read by Philippa Valentine. As she may left the room, more alone and afraid than she'd ever been before, The dress was choking the very life out of her. Wanting no more than to throw herself down and bawl her eyes out, she made hurriedly for her room. How could she have just done that? Stand there and be so tough on her dearest friends. Demand obedience from them, of all people. But it was all she could do. There was no other way around it, and she just hoped they would understand. One sign of compassion or doubt from them, and she just knew she would have collapsed completely. What Guerin had done to her wasn't a private thing, which made it even worse. Somehow, she had to make some sense of the madness that she'd come home to. So Ashime strode away from the corridor, the thick drapery of the dress twisting annoyingly around her legs. Being so determined on getting back to her chamber and having a private tear or two, she didn't notice Connor until he had caught up with her. Spinning around at his touch on her shoulder, she found herself grasping for the sword that wasn't there. "'What is it?' she snapped her green eyes sparking, all pretense at patience gone. I need to talk to you, alone. Well, then, if you can walk as fast as I am, then you can. She deliberately set a rapid pace, hoping to outdistance him. Unfortunately, his legs were just as long as hers. I wanted to ask you if you know what you're getting yourself into, going to the Outer Islands. Thank you for the vote of confidence, but I do happen to have been born there. With a sudden lope, Connor managed to get in front of her and stopped, effectively blocking the corridor. I didn't mean that. I meant, are you prepared for what you might find there? Like the Duke, the Weavers. Now look here, Ashimay's anger boiled up again. She advanced on him until they were standing breast to breast, her breath in his face. I appreciate that you've been badly treated here, especially when you went to the trouble to try and warn us about the Weavers. But don't think that gives you the right to tell me what to do. While you are here, you will obey me, or start swimming home. All right, all right, Connor held up his hands in submission. I just don't think it's a good idea. You going off on a personal mission to the Outer Islands, when you might be needed here. None too gently, Ashime shoved her way past him. Just because you sit can lead from the rear doesn't mean that we do. I'm going to find out important information on our enemy. Now, if you don't mind... Treading on dangerous ground, Connor kept up with her. 
her leg, still weak, twitched under her, and Ashime found herself colliding with the wall. Swearing volubly, she leaned against it, fighting to keep control and not break down in tears. Look, will you just get out of my way? She rolled back against the wall and rubbed her head wearily. Will you follow me and obey me, Conaness Vale, or will you not? I must know. He dropped to the floor on one knee. Clasping her startled hand to his, he drew it first to his head, then to his heart. Both were hot. In this life and the next, your word, honour and command is mine. It was the traditional bond of clansman to chief. She looked down into his open brown eyes, thinking that he was so very young, so very fresh and alive. Not that much of an age difference stood between them, but at this moment Ashime felt ancient. That's not what I meant, but I accept your pledge. He rose up until his brown eyes were even with hers. You saved me, and I think that you will need all the help you can find. You will discover that we Sitkan are not lacking in courage either. Realising that her hands still rested on his heart, she snatched it away. Good. Then plan to be on a ship tomorrow morning. Now, if you don't mind, I have other matters to deal with. Conaness Fale gave her a short bow and, turning on his heel, went back the way he'd come. He was something totally unexpected to her. With an exasperated sigh, as she made turned, it wasn't as if she didn't have enough to cope with right now. Well, Lou smiled at the other stand's faces. She certainly hasn't changed. More is the pity. Rosso shook his head in wonderment. She can't do this. She can, and she will. Solicitor shot him an icy look. For who else is there? The door opened, and young Connor entered. His battered face was flushed, but his eyes gleamed. She won't change her mind. Guston laughed shortly. I didn't think she would. Why do you suppose we kept silent? You've got a lot to learn there. Quiet descended on the room, each of them turning to contemplate their own inner demons. Finally, Solistra and Lou rose, divine robes whispering across the floor. We must be on our way. The godling patted Solistra's arm paternally. We have much to do. Our orders have never actively taken part in the earthly realm, but the time has come. Yes, Solistra chipped in, almost happy. It's time to give them a kick in the rear that they won't soon recover from. A divine moot the like of which Chrisfell has never seen. Lou and I have a lot to discuss before he goes. I will talk to you of the Scarlet Wolves later. And then, surprisingly, she moved to each of them, sealing their brow with the mother's kiss. A benediction and prayer, not looked for, but kind in its giving. The warriors shuffled their feet. Then the room was full of only the men and Jerris. Crinus was first to rise among them. We too should be our friends. Provisions to get, horses to see, all that mindless drag of travelling. It will be good to be Scarlet Wolves again. Guston ran a thoughtful hand over the badge that was all that remained of that time. To wear the red once more. Perhaps that's worth it. But will all of the wolves feel the same? Connor said. Many of your men will be farmers and such by now. The call to arms may not be so welcome to them. They will come. Murat's look brooked no argument. Sitken had never been his favourite people. Too many clan memories. He barely tolerated Connor. But I do not think the wearing of the red will be worth the sacrifice to come. Let's get going. Crinus and Guston followed him to the door. Coming, Rosa? He waved them on. In a moment. The others exchanged a puzzled look, but closed it quietly behind them. 
Rosa was serious for once, and Jerris and Connor kept their peace, sensing his anxiety. This was a time for silences. I don't like this. Rosa seemed trapped by the view outside, or perhaps he was afraid to meet their eyes. I don't like leaving Ashmey with you. No offence. None taken, Jerris murmured. I'd stop her if I could. She's always been bull-headed. Seldom takes advice from anyone, least of all me. I just wanted you to know, his eyes were surprisingly fierce when he turned to them, that I'm holding you two responsible for a safe return. He leaned closer, muscles bunching under his mail, fists clenched. And if you came back to Skellig and she doesn't, I'll make sure that you pay. With that, he was gone before either could react. Certainly provokes strong feelings, this lady. And I think we're both going to find out why, Jerris said, with what might have been a grin or a grimace. Alone. With Garen gone, Giselle was trapped. No way back within, and she could sense divine powers scanning Skellig. A trio of mothers with linked powers was more than Giselle could overcome, and if they grasped her gossamer threads, she would be undone, literally. Avoidance was her best option. Flattening herself as thin and narrow as possible, she lurked about the walls, flitting from shadow to shadow, skittering across the stonework. Damn that duke! His sudden exit to the outer islands had left Giselle vulnerable. He had proved a fickle ally. Listening to what conversations she dared, she gathered that Ashime was firmly in control, for the moment. And then there was the welcome news that she would be following after Garen. Giselle smiled her ragtag smile. Let the fool traipse after her betrayer. What she would find there would keep her well occupied. The Alpha was strong enough now. A sharp stab of longing went through her, desire to be within, to feel the power that a single could never accomplish. She remembered the taste of the almost completed joining with Jerris. Its resistance had been surprising, but she was sure that with more time it would have succumbed. Power hung around it. The smell of it still lingered. For an instant she was tempted to try again, but they would be ready for that. Despite her longing, Giselle was not stupid. Somehow she'd have to find a place to hide, rest, and grow strong. A breeze, a stirring as someone passed her fragile concealment. An opportunity presented itself, a refuge to slide into, where no meddling mother would sense her presence. Narrowing herself to a sliver, Giselle sought the gap that was offered to her. Within that person she could hide, watch, and wait. The ignominy of defeat she would repay in kind. The stables at least were a place they knew. Roseau, Merrick, Guston and Crinus made themselves comfortable in hay among the thick smells of leather and horse. Such had been their custom in past times. Wordlessly they pulled out honeybreads that they had swiped from the kitchens on their way. These were always better when they were fresh and dripping. The taste of it on their tongues, hot and sweet, brought back memories of less complicated times. Licking his fingers, Crinus observed, We can't take our horses into the Lystra Mountains at this time of year. Chuckles came from Roseau. We could finally be rid of your nag that way. A minor scuffle broke out as Crinus attempted to insert Roseau's head in a nearby bucket. I just knew that you'd be here, as she may stood in the doorway, a distant, bittersweet look on her face. She was once more in her armour, though her hair was still loose and incongruously still held by the gold band. Moving into the stable doorway and looking about her, she smiled a little. 
Remember the first time we had to come here and choose our horses for guard duty? Guston flopped back in the hay. And you got the best one. Mine kept biting me. And iron jaw threw me three times. Crinus pulled straw from his hair and helped Rosa to his feet. Good days, though. Aye, good days. We could never have guessed we'd be here today. I thought we'd be scarlet wolves forever. As she made drop down next to her friends, she slipped free the gold band from her hair and idly twirled it in her hands. Won't argue with you on that one, Ash, Crinus said, picking up one of her hands. The day the wolves left? Ah, that day. A soft smile. She laid his scarred hand on top of hers. The others gathered round and placed theirs there, too. <laughs> you all told me I was mad to stay here, and I guess that you've been proved right. If I'd only known, I wouldn't have wasted all my time. No time's wasted, Guston said. For a long time they lingered like that, clustered together, hands gripped on one another, the familiar smells about them. As she may realise that she was lucky to have ever shared such friendship in her life. Sending a little prayer skyward, she asked that they would come back safely. The stable boys broke the spell, coming in through the stable door, leading a quartet of shaggy-looking ponies. Sweet mother! Gustund exclaimed, rising to get a good look at them. I don't think that you were still mad at us from that little landslide. Merrick got up too, running his hand over the stout bay pony. Good solid mountain ponies. Just the thing for taking to the Lystra Pass. I'd rather ride in style, Rosa groaned. Couldn't you find a decent-looking mountain pony? One with a bit less cart-horse in it? As she may scolded him. I'm not here to salve your pride, Rozo. I want you to all come back to me in one piece. I'm not letting you freeze to death up there because your horse died under you. Now, I made sure that there are plenty of good provisions, but I would rely on fresh food from the villages up until the mountains. No need to tell us that. Credits began examining the saddlebags. Nothing like jerky and stone bread to stay out of the stomach. Where's the medicinal mead? Merrick found it in his provisions, and indeed there was only enough for medicinal purposes. Rosa groaned. If we're going on this little jaunt for you, Ash, then at least you could provide her with a bit of luxury. No extravagance for you? Solistra had sneaked up on them remarkably silently. Her white blonde hair was tied up in a close approximation to a war braid, and she had exchanged her mother's robes for a fur-collared, green-velvet riding outfit. This is a mission of grave importance. Yes, mother. We'll try to remember that this isn't a naming-day picnic. Solistra frowned, but busied herself with slipping on fur-lined gloves. Guston, trying not to smile, turned to Ashime. I see you've got messages for us. So, <laughs> Rosa's lips twisted, we are now messengers, like you wanted all along, Ash. She didn't acknowledge his sarcasm, instead turning to the others. I've packed enough for all the villagers between here and the mountains. Word will spread among the old wolves, but... There are those key ones which you must find, as she may handed Crinus the list. I think you'll recognise most of them. Merrick peered over his friend's shoulder as he unrolled the parchment, even though it meant nothing to him. Some of them won't be pleased to see us. Crinus winced. I think I still owe Shaitan some money. And Rozo threw him through the hungry beaver's window last time they met. This won't be easy. Rozo clapped her on the back. Oh, I was wrong, Ash. Maybe this is going to be fun after all. None of it's going to be simple as she may said, looking away suddenly, and undoubtedly thinking of other things as well. Before her resolve could break, she moved to each of the men and slipped an identical object into each of their hands. They all looked at her gift in surprise, but recognised it. The golden snarling head of a wolf, with a scrap of red leaf tied to the bottom. The badge of a captain of the Scarlet Wolves. They'd all joked years before which would be the first one to wear it. Now they all would. 
No words were needed in the face of such irony. Well then, Crinus swung up into the saddle of his pony. We better get going. The weather isn't getting any better, nor the mountains any closer. The stable boy led a slightly less shaggy pony around for Solistra and helped her to mount. The others swung astride as well. Making herself busy with Solistra's stirrups concealed the tears in her eyes. Now don't linger in the lowlands long. The paths won't get any easier. And don't ride into the mountain villages all cocky. These people have different ideas of hospitality and... Roso turned his pony around her impatiently. Come on, let's be off before she wants to see under our fingernails. We'll be back before you are, Gustin assured her, and then led the rest, clattering out of the stable. Solistra nodded. I'll try to keep them under control. And then she too was gone. To the last, Roso had the final word. To the hungry beaver first, he crowed. Let's see if Kustel's still in a generous mood. As she may stood for a long time, listening to their retreating hoofbeats, until they faded away. Keep them safe, she prayed. Sweet mother, keep them safe until we meet again. Then turning, she made her way back to the dawn room. Connor stood, scrutinising the ship that Ashime had secured for them. He didn't like the looks of it, though he was no expert on anything nautical. Perhaps there was some mistake. The sun was bright this morning, but there was little heat in it. Within Skellig Bay it was calm enough, but none could guess what the outer channels would be like, and when he thought about it, that was the least of the dangers. The crowd made themselves audible before they became visible. He turned on his heel to watch with some amusement as Ashime and Jerris came down the last of the stone steps. A large band of chiefs and courtiers were clattering after and responsible for the noise. He fought to maintain control, but lost it and smiled broadly. The chiefs were grim and determined-looking and clustered closest to Ashime. The courtiers were like a gaggle of brightly coloured birds twittering about them. The group resembled nothing more than a collection of ravens and parrots. Their protestations preceded them. Ashime, though, looked in rare form, more comfortable in her black armour than the finery of court. Tendrils of her copper hair had escaped an elaborate battle braid and fluttered about her face. The gold ring gleamed on her hand. She strode determinedly through the press, ignoring all around her. Jerris was at her side, a male form, and clothed in a fine, linked male shirt. Despite his apparent normality, Connor noted that both chiefs and courtiers generally avoided him. Reaching Connor, Ashime gave him a curt nod, and with a sigh turned to face the crowd. Here I take leave of you. I thank you for all your advice, but I must do what I must do. The chieftains, their moustaches and beards waggling in the wind, remained silent. They understood the demands of honour and the unassailable decisions of a chieftain. Courtiers, however, did not. They were used to discussions and committees, even if they'd come to nothing under Guerin's rule. Lady Ashime, one immaculately dressed fop with a long, haughty face ventured. We wish you would reconsider. Think of the child, your heir. Her face clouded over quickly. I go to secure my child's rights. Have no fear, I will return within the month. No discussion will be tolerated. Her tone silenced even the most outraged among them. Now go and do as I have instructed. I expect the moot to be ready when I return. Chieftains bowed and courtiers scampered off too. Soon there was no one else on the pier but the three of them. Ashime let out a long sigh, and her shoulders lost their tense look. Thank the mother. You may not want to thank her just yet, Connor kicked the prow of the ship, until you have a look at this. Watch the boot, son, will you? A rusty, peeved voice came from the rear. A thump of a hatch and a disgruntled face appeared, soon followed by the rest. Heaving himself onto the deck, the captain appeared. Despite his bulk, he moved his form nimbly up to them. The odour of salt and alcohol came with him. 
the face reflected decades of exposure to wind and waves. Ashime rushed to clasp hands with the, with the pungent newcomer. Vral, you drunken sot! Connor noticed she refrained from drawing him too close. I hope this leaky barge is ready to sail. What do you mean? The offended sailor made a sweeping gesture. She's as sound and as well put together as the day she was made. I don't doubt that, Connor muttered to Jerris. Ashime tugged Vral over to the others. These are my travelling companions. Connor of the Sitken and Jerris of... Well, not from here. The sailor's sharp eyes didn't seem to miss much, but he said nothing. Vral here is the stupidest, I mean, <laughs> bravest captain on the deep, and I would have got someone else, but there was none. Ach! Vral hawked and spat over the side. Oh, that's Ashime, I remember. I was afraid you'd gone all soft and skellig. <laughs> you'd better jump on smartish, though. The tide's turning, and this old tub needs all the help she can get. Leaping nimbly onto the deck, he disappeared below while his crew leapt to their stations. Ashime, Connor ventured. It didn't mean to second guess you, but... I know. He's not exactly perfect. But the only captain mad enough to do the channels at this time of year. Jerris scratched his head. Uh, and that makes him a good choice. Connor glanced anxiously between them. His experience of boats was fairly limited, but not encouraged by this ship's appearance. She grinned wickedly, all the time, drawing them off the pier onto the deck of the ship. Just trust my judgment. The ship was incongruously called Sweet Lady, but Raoul at least had a deep affection for her. Once Ashima explained to the others, he'd run a large fleet of ships, as far removed from this as a horse from a rat. Starting in a dubious manner as a small-time smuggler, he'd built up his empire into a respectable and legitimate business. But life had brought him full circle, and his former prosperity was now reduced to the sweet lady. Previously owned by the Divine Home, she'd been sold when she'd become too decrepit. Shortly after buying her, the storm that Ashima had weathered with Vral had destroyed all but this ship. Vral had called it Divine Luck, for had not the old tub been blessed by godlings and mothers alike? His gamble on easy money from one cargo from the Outer Islands hadn't paid off, but in all, he was rather philosophical about it. They pulled away from the pier quietly enough, as the sun was just rising over the curve of the bay. The creaking and complaints from Sweet Lady were their only accompaniment. From here, Skellig seemed calm enough, distance blurring the edges, masking the scurrying that Ashime had left in her wake. The three stood at the stern, letting the castle linger in their eye a little longer. Ashime released a long, soft sigh, turned and made her way on uncertain sea legs to the prow. The other two tarried for a bit, Jerris letting his form shift to the between, now that the proprieties of the shore were behind them. The taste of the sea air made them both uneasy. You knew, Connor said, shifting and turning his back on Skellig. My people had horror of the sea. The little boat I had to get here was the best thing the island had to offer, and the man who sailed her an outcast there. Chris Fellas always looked to the sea, always valued its possession of the outer islands. I didn't think any of the other nations really wanted them. We have some stories. Jerris nodded. Though it, of course, had no idea what the other was talking about. It had no history, no mother who might have told it tales. Those from the outer islands, Connor continued almost to himself, have always been different, unusual, maybe even feared. But isn't... She told me yes. As she may herself is from there. I am sure she doesn't know what she's sailing to. But it is more than just the Duke, that is for certain. But if she won't listen to her friends, she certainly won't listen to us. Jerris was quiet a moment, struggling to find its feet in the unexpected lurching of the waves. In its head, too, it was struggling to find balance. Yet it was afraid to voice its own formless fears. Come on, you two, 
Eshimei yelled from the prow. Help me get the gear stored below. So the sweet lady sailed on. They passed the sweeping cliffs that were all that remained of southern Crisfell. Here the sea raged against the land, throwing itself ceaselessly against the glowering mountains that ran down to meet it. The mist rose like fine smoke out of the sea-kissed trees, a rich green carpet against the greyness of the sea. Connor watched Ashime watching. While Jerris seemed entranced by the view forward, she was always intent on the place they were leaving. Her long, bright hair captured tiny drops of the sea, and her eyes seemed to trace the contours of the land, trying to memorise it. Connor let himself look at her, captured by her little gestures and the sadness he sensed beneath. He'd already noted that although her manner was always brisk, and she never mentioned Garin, her eyes were soft and hurt. She had already caught him. The three of them spoke little, keeping their space and their thoughts to themselves. Each night, though, when the weather allowed... They played chieftain's hand on the deck with Vral and his sailors, and each morning Ashime forced them awake early to practice sword forms near the prow. Practice, she reminded them, was more important now than ever. However, more often than not, they were confined to their cabin, such as it was, by the weather. Jerris and Connor fared the worst, with nothing to think about, as the lady pitched them about from wall to wall. Ashime remained in her swinging hammock, unaffected, as if the world could do no more to her. Even when salt water rushed in through the porthole, she said nothing except, This is not worse than the last time I sailed with Brawl. That comment brought little satisfaction to Jerris and Connor, though they had to grudgingly admit that the captain did seem to know his ship and crew, and despite the discomfort of the seasonal weather, he was getting them through. They were only a day from landfall in Morlow, principal island and home of Lord of the Deep, when trouble caught up to them in a different shape than the weather. It was Jerris standing braced against the wind at the prow, which noticed the danger. Its preternaturally sharp eyesight picked out two dark forms bearing down on them from the shore. When it pointed them out to Ashimate, she knew in the pit of her stomach that these were not the ships of Morlo. Outer island catches were always painted in bright, clashing colours of the tribe that made them. These ominous shapes, already tacking to outmanoeuvre them, bore no such shape or colours. Immediately she told Vral and saw his flicker of concern. But he had not plied the seas for twenty-three years and learned nothing. He broke into swift action, ordering his sailors in rough commands that sent the sweet lady heeling away from the shore. The waves were high, and the weather inclement. If they could make it to open waters, there was a chance they could lose them in the chaos. The dark boats, though, were made of swifter stuff, and though the captain joined in securing in the sails and rigging, there seemed little doubt they would be caught before reaching the dubious safety of open waters. Brow's face then became a hard mask of determination. Ashime, you best stand ready. This old tub has got a couple of surprises but not enough to handle two of those damn ships. Still, he ducked into the forecastle, returning with an ancient-looking sword. Sweet lady won't go down without a fight. The three passengers held tightly to the rigging as the sailors guided the ship about, changing tack and aiming straight at the onrushing vessels. Connor grasped the hilt of his sword, staggering a little at the sudden lurches. I hope Vral knows what he's doing. Ashime grinned wickedly, baring her teeth against the wind. He is hoping... But it still looks like we'll get the kinks worked out of us sooner than I imagined. What a comforting idea, Jerris muttered, strapping on its bright blades. It was beginning to understand Gustin's comment about her now. I hope you've enjoyed this chapter of Weaver's Web. If you want to get your hands on an E or print edition of this novel, you can do so through my website, which is pjba. L-L-A-N-T-I-N-E dot net. 
On this podcast, you've heard Ghost Song by Hands Upon Black Earth, which is available through magnatune.com. All other music in this podcast is supplied by T. Morris. Find out more about T at tmorris.com. Thanks for listening.